0: Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, there is none like you. Every one of us came in this door this morning because of what you have done. Lord, you have called us out of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Lord, we thank you for that. None of us can boast that we found you. But Lord, you made yourself known. In the particular circumstances that you called us to faith in Jesus you called us to repentance you called us to yourself and we thank you this morning that we can rejoice and even though we were excited to be together and rejoice in the resurrection last Sunday we know that each Sunday is a celebration of your resurrection because you not only rose from the dead and ascended into heaven but you indwell us by your holy spirit and for that we are filled with joy overflowing and truly we are thankful god we pray that you would help us this morning in a few moments as we look at your word that you would speak to us that you would help us to not just understand your word but to apply it to our lives god we pray not just for ourselves but other churches we lift up um, uh, the other churches in our community, Lord. And we lift up um, Lord um, Midway Baptist Church this morning that you would be with them and that you would encourage them, Lord, and that you would make yourself known to them. And while they're just down the street, Lord, we know that as a separate congregation that Lord you would encourage them, and Lord, that you would build them up and draw many to faith in Christ uh, through them. Lord, we pray for Um, our network of churches and the Reformed Baptist Network, that you would be uh, with them and working through them. Lord, we um, just uh, pray that you would be with Arbor Church this morning up in Ohio, that you would help them as they uh, worship together, that, uh, Lord, you would be with Pastor Steve up there, and, Lord, that you would um, be with that congregation as they minister to so many, including a huge number of students from Cedarville University, Lord, that you would uh, just continue to work in and through that congregation, Lord. We rejoice with them, all that you're doing in their midst. Father, we pray for the persecuted church. Uh, we lift up uh, the persecuted church in Mauritania, Lord, and in West Africa, we ask that you'd be uh, with the church. They would stand firm, Lord, that they would not give in when they are persecuted, but Lord, that you would help them to stand firm, whether they're in, in prison or just Uh, wrestling, Lord, through uh, being faithful in the gospel, that you would provide for them and encourage them. Father, we pray for unreached people groups that have never yet heard of you. And so we pray for unreached people groups uh, in the country of Chad this morning, the Burn people, Lord, that you would bring them, missionaries, that you would bring uh, the gospel into their language through your word, that, Lord, you would provide missionaries with a burden Uh, to see this unreached people group uh, come to know you. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, you are exalted when every nation, tribe, and tongue is, there's a portion of them redeemed for your good and for your glory. And so we ask that you would uh, do that. Father, we lift up the troubled spots around the world. We continue to be grieved by the war in Ukraine, that Lord, you would accomplish your purposes. We know you hold the nation's, like streams of water in your hand and their leaders, that you would work in such a way to make uh, your name great. Lord, there is none like you, and everyone will bow. And we ask for your grace, though, in this situation, as both sides have so many casualties, and uh, war brings so much pain and destruction. Lord, I pray that you would um, bring many to faith in Christ through this, both on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. Father, we pray for the crisis continuing in a humanitarian way in Turkey and Syria after these earthquakes. Lord, thank you for those that have responded and provided housing. Uh, we lift up um, uh, the Asia Minor ministries that we have partnered with to bring uh, not just food, but the gospel too, as they're on the ground there. We thank you also for other organizations that are uh, providing for their needs and sharing the gospel like Samaritan's Purse and, others lord that are providing housing and um and a warm meal and opportunity for those that have lost everything in this life but to realize they've gained everything by hearing your gospel and i pray that you would continue that work and be with those that are uh, working hard to see that uh, through we pray for refugees uh, in our country and abroad that you would be with them that you would draw near to them as they have left their homelands for various And sundry reasons that you would help your church in these areas to have compassion upon them father we pray for those who are grieving uh, the loss of loved ones that you would continue to draw yourself near to them father for those that are sick that you would be with them we uh, lift up um, uh, barrett lord as we've been praying for him as he um, is uh, finishing up his chemo and lord that you would just continue to bring um, just healing and restoration to his body thank you that we can pray for uh, other believers lord in different locations so we lift him to you we lift up danny uh, richardson lord in his um, upcoming surgery that you would give the doctor's wisdom and lord that you would provide him relief as he battles uh, sickness as well father we pray for expectant mothers we thank you for being with kaylee this week as she went in with premature labor that lord you would um, continue to be with her on bed rest and lord that you would provide for her that uh, you would be with Ethan as well as they prepare to become parents, we thank you for this precious child, God. Would you uh, bring a safe delivery um, for for Kaylee and and Ethan, Lord? We just thank you for them and thank you for what you're doing in them and um, preparing them to be parents, Lord. Lord, we lift up Christ Alone Church to you down in Wilkesboro, and um, we thank you for this church plant, Lord. We thank you for pastor tim's leadership we pray that you continue to strengthen him on the backside of the sickness that he has had we thank you for this congregation as they meet together for the second consecutive week lord that you would build them up that you would give them wisdom about reaching their community we thank you for uh, pastor tim um, overcoming so many obstacles in the last few years and lord thank you for bringing him to us and that we've been able to partner with him to see uh, your work done and lord thank you for this wonderful relationship that we have. Uh, between churches and lord that you would continue that we might see other churches planted for your glory and finally lord as we turn to your word would you help us we pray as we worship um, not just in song and not just in prayer as we have done already but now uh, through listening uh, to your word and lord that you would be exalted not just in the preaching of it but obedience to it in jesus name amen well good morning I trust that everyone is doing well and recovering from their Easter festivities, being with family. Um, In fact, it's uh, interesting that our text this morning is uh, about family in a particular family. And so it seems to be uh, our topic uh, in recent weeks as we walk through Genesis. I hope that you're being fed by that. But if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter uh, 11, We finished two weeks ago, we took a break for Easter in Luke 24, and now we are back to chapter 11 in uh, verse 10, and we will read through the rest of the chapter. And I know you're looking at this saying, oh no, another genealogy. And so uh, hopefully this is not accompanied with much tears, but uh, we are able to look through these genealogies and find such awesome Nuggets of truth that often we would miss if we didn't look at these things. Because again, every word of God is given to us for uh, our upbuilding and for our encouragement. So, would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. This is God's word. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Ar-Pakshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpakshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Then Arpakshad lived 35 years and he fathered Shelah. And Arpakshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters when Riu had lived 32 years he fathered Serug and Ryu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters when Serug had lived 30 years he fathered Nahor and Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters when Nahor had lived 29 years he fathered Terah And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. Time or when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The popular actor Michael J. Fox once said Family is not an important thing it's everything it's interesting as we look at this text this morning we see yet another evidence of god's grace we have seen this in the context of genesis all the way through from the very beginning that there was a couple that began the human race that god created adam out of the ground and he took from Adam, a rib and formed his wife Eve. And it's through these that the nation, or the nation, or the uh, the world was populated up to the point of the flood. Many estimated that there could have been many, many people that had already encompassed much of the earth as far as population by the time of the flood. And then we see that the great flood brought judgment because of the violence of mankind, and God destroyed every breathing thing except Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. And through these eight, God repopulated the earth at that time. We looked at last week concerning the Tower of Babel that there could have been uh, up to a couple thousand people at this point, a hundred years later after the flood. And at Babel, we saw so many things happening that we see this really outline of where the author Moses wants to go under the inspiration of the Spirit to lead us to understand what God is doing. Have you ever wondered that? What in the world are you doing, God? You look at the nations, you look at your own family, perhaps, or your own life, and you wonder, what, Lord, are you doing? Well, a beautiful picture here of this in this context, we wonder, what is the Lord doing? He has confused their languages, and they're beginning to go around the world and populate the earth. Their speech, culture was being developed, identities being found within the human race at this time. And then it's as if the whole world was on display that the author of Genesis now puts a shining light upon one son of Noah, and that is Shem. And we've talked about this in weeks past, that there's two lines of Shem, and we looked at this earlier in chapter 10. Look over to chapter 10, verse 21. If you remember how that was divided, we looked at this. We talked about the uh, inheritance, or rather the lineage of Japheth and then the lineage of Ham and their descendants and what nations came out of them, and then we looked at Shem in verse 21. But just by way of review, I want to look at this again because there's two lines of Shem that Genesis identifies. First of all, one through Eber, which we'll pick up here in this genealogy, and a second one through Joktan in verse 26. But look at chapter 10, verse 21. We'll just read that again very shortly because you'll recognize these names. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shela, and Shela fathered Eber. Those are the same as what we're looking at this morning. Then to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Alamad, or uh, sorry, Almodad, Shellef, Hazmaveth, that's my favorite, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Orphil, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Shafar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, it's important to note when we looked at chapter 10, it was kind of an introduction to the Tower of Babylon, chapter 11, because notice he mentions languages, but he's simply giving us kind of an introduction about what is going to happen. These divided into language groups and really into their lands. Now, I think that's important to note because we see that notice in verse 30, we've been talking about those who headed east. Remember, we looked at this theme in Genesis that when Adam and Eve left the garden, they went east. When Cain was, after he killed Abel and he got his punishment, he headed east and established Babylon. There's a line of Cain versus the line of faithful Abel that we see throughout the scriptures. And even here, this one line of Shem heads east, and then the focus of all the Scripture goes on to this other line of Shem. Now, if you're a historian or an anthropologist, this might be frustrating to you because these are some of the most ancient documents concerning the history of mankind. And we've lost a lot of history, but it's very interesting that God in His Word focuses the spotlight in His sovereign will over this line. And why is that? Because we know from chapter 3, verse 15, that God has a plan of redemption, that His stream goes all the way through the Scriptures, and it's a glorious truth, because some of us might be focused on what's not here in chapter 11, rather than what is here. And I want you to see that, because that alone is a great observation. God does care about the nations, as we'll see at the end of this sermon But the focus of the text of Scripture is focusing in on two main points from chapter or verse 10 rather to 25. We are looking at a chosen line, a genealogical line in verses 10 through 25. And then, secondly, I want to look at this chosen family in verse 26 through 32 and then make some application to the rest of Scripture, let alone our own lives. So, when we look at this and we see this review of uh, really, what God is doing in this generation, notice several things, just at glancing at this passage again. Notice that this is again the from uh, the beginning of verse ten that these are the generations of Shem. This is really just a portion of Shem's family. Now we know that family is important, and by way of looking at this, I haven't made a lot of emphasis here, but if you haven't caught it, God likes human progeny, particularly godly seed, as we see in the scriptures. And I don't want to pass this over because we see this as a very focused text in the uh, fulfillment of what God is doing, even through human fertility. And then we come to a screeching stop, which we'll look at here in a few moments. But notice here that God is pro-reproduction. He is a fa- He's in favor of seeing life propagated. He is in favor of families. I like to notice here that several of these names and these ages here, they were starting their families in their 30s. And I'll make mention too about the longevity of life and its decrease also in this genealogy. But first, I think it's important that we realize that it's almost the expectation from Genesis that man would be fruitful and multiply. As one young man once said to me, it's one of the most glorious commands of Scripture. It's fun to obey the Lord in this way, but I love the fact that all these children are mentioned here, but also it's following the firstborn. It's It's the expectation that babies would be born and that the generations would continue, each generation. It's also been said that if we have just one child, it's merely replacing one of the spouses. To have two, it replaces both. To have three, it's adding. To have four, now we're multiplying. But I also see here in this text that God comes near even the barren. We'll come back to that. But it seems in this text is this expectation that God is working even through that which seems natural. God is supernaturally working in families. And so look through this. Notice that it mentions those who fathered the next generation. It tells us their age, and it tells us how long they lived afterwards. And this repeats itself multiple times. Also, with the ending phrase, as we see the first one at the end of verse 11, it says, and had other sons and daughters. Does it mean that those other sons and daughters were not important? No. They were certainly part of God's sovereign plan to repopulate the earth at that time. But the author's intent here, the Holy Spirit's intent through Moses penning these words, was to focus with laser intensity upon this genealogical line for us to see how it proceeded, but notice that he doesn't leave any name out. He shows how it passes from one generation to the next. Now, look at this also concerning life after the flood. I have two comments here. First of all, on the the focus of this genealogical line, that the life expectancy decreases over verse 10 through verse 25. If you notice that, we'll look at that in in more in depth. And then secondly, I want to focus on the fact that these are literal years. I want to make comment to that more in an apologetic standpoint, because there are some that would say that these years are simply talking about other things. So first of all, look at this. In verse 13, again, we're going to kind of look at this in a, a big picture format rather than walking through it verse by verse. But I want you to see the repetition there in verse 11, verse 13, verse 15, verse 17, verse 19, verse 21, all say, and had other sons and daughters. So notice here, first of all, with our Notice he had lived 35 years and became a daddy. And this doesn't mean that they necessarily couldn't have children till then, but it's very interesting to note as observation that almost without uh, exception, all the way through, all these men fathered their first children in their early 30s. And why is that? Well, they had to go to college, they had to pay off their loans, they had to buy a house, and that's all here in the text, right? I'm joking. They started their families maybe just based upon God's working, his timing. But notice as they had their first children, notice the length of their lives following that. They fathered these and then lived, notice Shelah lived 403 years. Our Paksha 500 years so if you add those two numbers together when they first had their children plus the longevity after those children That's their total lifespan So for Shem for instance, that's 600 years Notice how it decreases in one generation with our Pachshed. He lives 403 years plus 35 years He's only he's living almost 150 years less than his father then look on to Sh- uh, Shelah in verse 14. He lived another 403 years, so a total of 433 years. And then Eber lived 34 years when he fathered Peleg, and then another 430, so he's at 460. He did a little bit better. He, he drank his Ovaltine or something. And then you have Rio here, 209 years in verse 19, and he is also living another uh, excuse me, 209 years after he fathered um, Ryu. Uh, So a total of 239 years. And on and on we can go. I think I've made my point there, but notice how they start decreasing. By the time we get to Sarug, he lives only another 200 years after he fathers at 30. But notice also the decrease is the the names or the uh, years get a little bit lower as they start to uh, not only produce children, but also, you get to Nahor in verse 24, and he lives another 29, or he had lived 29 years. He's the first father in his 20s. So the, the age of becoming fathers goes down along with their life expectancy to the point that he fathers Terah and lives only another 119 years. Still, that's, by today's standards, that's pretty good. He lived 150. Y'all ready for that? Don't retire too soon. The money might run out. So you see here that the the focus of the Scripture is not just focusing on this genealogical line, but there's also consequences of the fall. In fact, God will mention mankind's longevity in future chapters. I think it's important to note this because when we look at these things, I think it's an apologetic here concerning that these years are actual years. These are actual people that lived, and they actually lived this long. Now, if you do your quick Google search on who is the oldest living human being, you'll probably come up with the centurion that came out of France, that she lived 120 some odd years. By today's standards, that's amazing. But it has nothing, it holds no light to what we see here in the book of Genesis about longevity. Now we know Methuselah is the oldest living human being prior to the fall 969 years. And I think it's important today that we understand the foundations of Genesis are important as God's word presents it. Instead of trying to do mental gymnastics around God's word and make it say something it's not, notice here, it's very straightforward. And I think it's a great apologetic here as we see these years decreasing that these are actual people that lived these many years. In fact, you can look up a chart. I actually thought about putting one in our bulletin this morning to see how the life expectancy went down after the flood and after babel. And there's many reasons for that. You can look at this from a sociological perspective or even a biological perspective, but that's not the point of the scriptures. The point of the scriptures is to focus in here on what God is doing. So we see this genealogical line or this chosen line, but it gets even more focused when we get down to verse 27. We see in verse 26 that the end of this genealogical line was Terah, and he had lived 70 years. He fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And it's the first time we see three names instead of just one. The point is it's building up to this point. That we see God has been dealing with the world in a global flood. And then he's dealing with the world at the Tower of Babel in that they were all united under one language. And now we see it focusing a little bit more on one part of Shem's line. And now it gets even more distinct where it goes down to this family of Terah. And you know what? When we go into chapter 12, it's going to be even more focused down to one person. In fact, from chapter 12, through the rest of the scriptures up until Christ, it does the opposite again. It's like we enter through a window at chapter 12, verse 1, and we see these genealogies summed up to the point of Abram, and from Abram, this great promise is made that we'll look at in the weeks ahead, that he will be, uh, a numerous amount of children are going to come out of him, and through all, through his seed, the world will be blessed, And then we get to the end of the Old Testament and we're looking for a particular person called the Messiah. And so you see this, you pay attention to the scriptures. It starts with two people. It grows to the population of the flood. It decreases back to dealing with one family of Abram. And then it expands again to the Um, nation of israel and let alone all the tribes of the world and the the warring parties and then it comes back to the prince of peace and then it expands again in the new testament as we see the people of god and the gospel spreading god is up to something and we should pay attention at the three thousand foot level as opposed to being amongst the tree line here so first of all we've seen this genealogical line now let's look at this genealogical family look at verse 26 we', we'll back up to uh, well, we looked at verse 20, look at verse 27, excuse me. It says, "Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran." Now, I want you to see in really summarized form, this is really an outline of where we're going in Genesis. Why is this important? Well, Terah leads us to the family of Abram, but Abram also has two brothers. Haran is important because he fathers Lot, which we're going to find in uh, upcoming texts. So he's simply introducing what is about to come to us. And then in verse 28, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now this is important, I think, for two different reasons. First of all, I think it's important for us to look at this, that God doesn't leave anyone out. It's not that God is just rolling over individuals to get to just focus on one thing, but he makes mention of Haran and his death, and no doubt this has an impact on the family lineage, but we should pay attention to this. Birth and death are all affecting this particular family because we see that Lot no longer has a father. Now look in verse 28. It says, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, and in the land of his kindred, the Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, the introduction of Ur is very important. We'll come back to this in chapter 12, but I also want to make mention of this, that it mentions that they leave together, and then there's a focus on God's actual call on Abraham, which we'll make connection to in the weeks ahead. So, we see here that not just Haran is mentioned, verse 29, and Abram and Nahor, the two surviving Uh, uh, brothers, then it takes in a logical, chronological way from their early years to taking wives that they both marry. And notice it says the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. So you're right, those of you who are paying attention here, uh, Nahor takes his niece as wife, the daughter of Milcah and Izcah. And so we see this genealogical line, we see this genealogical family, and then it's almost as this passage, in all of its fertility, comes to a screeching halt here in verse 30. But it's important, don't miss it. It says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child of all the activity and all the births and all the fathering and mothering and all that's happening, that everything seems to come to a screeching halt in verse 30 that breeds a hopelessness, almost a helplessness of this family. You have two surviving brothers following the death of their other brother, and then one of those brothers can't have children. It seems almost, at first look, that God is going to even put Sarai aside and follow this productive line through Nahor. Humanly speaking, it seems like there is no hope. There is no expectancy. There is no way forward. There is no hope for this line or this part of the line. It's just how it is. It seems like a dead end, not to be continued. End of story. But this too is part of the introduction to the rest of Genesis. It's in fact through this screeching halt that God is going to begin his work in a particular family. Abram's family. It seems almost that what is humanly evident becomes the great workshop of God, that God takes in this barren woman and in fact raises up a people for himself. It's almost like Moses is giving us a great introduction to what he is about to introduce starting in chapter 12, verse 1, because it starts with these words Now the Lord said. I think there's hope for us here, particularly all of you women here. First of all, the natural seemingly uh, way of women is that they would be productive and that they would have children. And that seems all great, but when we come to a verse like this, we see that God draws near to those that are without children. Perhaps you look at a passage like this, or maybe one young married mother would say, why is it that God seems to give all these children and yet I am barren? In fact, in our cruel world today, that so many millions of babies are being aborted when when there are women that are desperate to have a child. It seems so unjust. But Sarai was barren. Let me just encourage those of you that maybe have never had children, but maybe wanted them, that God is near to you. He Knows what is going on. And just like with Sarai, he has a plan. Now, it doesn't mean that he will open your womb as he did with Sarai, but we do know that God knows and he does care. And he is near even those that are barren. In fact, we go so far as we'll see with Hagar in the future here that God even cares for precious, illegitimate children so let's look at this a little bit more in depth i think it's important because we see from this point that god is going to bring a nation to himself and we'll look at this in the context of the promise made to abraham and it's an awesome promise especially when there's no human way to solve it that god is going to bring out for himself a wonderful special people And so it's from this point, now the author brings us in verse 31, that tells us that now there's an action here. Terah now takes his son Abram and his son uh, uh, Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. I think this is important for us to see because, again, it's like a beautiful outline about where we are going. That God is working, that God is bringing them somewhere. He's doing something, He's up to much good. And we see His grace here in the context of all those families from the beginning of chapter 11 that have been scattered abroad. That God is showing His grace and mercy and plan to this family. And it says they came to Haran, and they settled there, no doubt named after this son of Terah. And the days of Terah, again, were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. In other words, bringing an end to this genealogy that God had accomplished something through all these names and all these descendants of Shem to the present day that we're looking at with Abram. For those of you interested in the time level, this is somewhere in the 2000s B.C., now it's interesting to note here that we would come to this and say, "Well, at face value, what in the world is this saying to us?" Well, I think several things. And when we put connect this to the, the the rest of Scripture, we know that God is working in this line. We don't have any stories really between Shem and uh, uh, Abram outside of what we saw with Noah. There seems to be hundreds of years of history that are just passed over. But God is at work. And notice here several things. First of all, we want to see, and we'll see in the context of Abram, that being a part of a certain genealogical line does not make you special. It might put you in a special category, but this was nothing of their own doing. God did this. I think it's important for us to see here in this text that being a part of a genealogical line doesn't save you. Being a part of a genealogical line, or why don't we put this in today's context, being a part of a Christian family doesn't save you. We're going to switch gears next chapter here in chapter 12, that it's what Abram does in believing God, responding to God's initiative in his promise, that Abram, it is accounted to him as righteousness. In fact, the Apostle Paul builds his great doctrine of justification in Romans chapter 4 and 5, based on these truths that we're going to look at and this genealogy. I think it's important to note here that many times we think that we are special or not special based upon whose family we're in, and yet God's Word is driving us to see not just the details of our lives, but ultimately His grace in spite of what is. God is creating a people for Himself. As we'll see in the New Testament, these people are not people that are based on genealogical biology, but they do have the same father. They are reconciled to God and given new hearts of regeneration. In fact, John the apostle calls it being born again. And so the attention of the New Testament, while it's on biology, focuses much more on the issue of faith and the progeny that comes from a spiritual people that God is building, as we know, the church. But secondly, it's not just a certain line that doesn't save you, but I think something else we need to see is that God brings about supernatural birth and we see it right here in the context of chapter 11. Sarai was barren. It took an act of God to even bring about physical progeny, which seems so natural in the context of chapter 11. There's all these babies being born, and then it's almost like God purposely points out that, yes, there's one barren woman. And I think it's a glorious truth that it's what seems impossible with man is possible with God. And God brings out of this barren woman a tribe, a nation, a people that ultimately will be a blessing to all. It's Sarai that is in the line of our precious Lord Jesus. God is able to do the impossible and bring about the impossible. And it's not just in a physical way but a spiritual way. And so, what is it for us this morning? Several applications for us to think about. How often do we think about faithfulness or our identities concerning our physical families more than our character defined by who we are as the people of God? If you walk with the Lord for many years, you'll find that you are much closer to your spiritual family, the church, than you are with your physical family. And it may be that God shows grace and has saved many of your family members, praise God. But even in the context of your life, you'll find that God is building a people for himself. Secondly, when you're looking at your identity, do you look at it in the midst of the tribes, tongues, and nations that are mentioned here in chapter 11? Or do you identify more yourself with what God is doing in the nations? And why is that important? Well, I think knowing my context here, who I'm speaking to in the Western world as Americans, we often have a very narrow mindset about what God is doing. That we know, for instance, that that America is not God's chosen people. We live in a blessed country, don't get me wrong. I'm very patriotic. I think we live in one of the greatest nations that has existed on planet Earth for many, many years but we are young. In fact, I think pridefully young and stupid to think that we can go on forever. And our identity in different things such as this, rather than the people of God, sets us up for failure. It did in many years past when these things have been called into question concerning the generation of the Revolutionary War, let alone the Civil War, let alone the two world wars that Uh, this nation has survived and let us not think that we can make our identity out of something else other than who we are in christ but it's also to expand our understanding of what god is doing in the world he is not merely working through one nation He is spreading his gospel with every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we know he's bringing them to faith in Christ. And as our world gets smaller through technology, we ought to do things like we are doing when you hear me pray for persecuted people or unreached people groups. We need to educate ourselves about what God is doing in the world. And I think it's important because we see the trajectories of those who study this, missiologists, are saying that the future of Christendom, especially in the evangelical sense is going to be more Afrocentric, in other words, centered in Africa, than it will be in the Western world in just a hundred years. We're going to see this partially in our lifetime. You younger folks are going to see it more. There is an extreme growth of evangelical explosion in North Africa and in Middle Africa than we've seen in previous generations. And great godly leaders are being raised up, and the African church is strong. Sure, it has its divisions and its troubles just like anywhere in the world, but it's interesting to see that as we see this cultural push that God is using and doing things in our generation that we should pay attention to. We can't just think culturally blindly. And this is good because we see that even from a text like this, that God is going to use and make a people for himself Ultimately that enhances his people for his purposes throughout the world So we see these things in physical ways we see that in um, In in our ways of our family and God's supernatural work and bringing new birth But my final question is where do you find yourself in this genealogy? Are we identified more with the line of Shem who goes their own way Who in their own pride seeks to build a kingdom of their own? Or do you find yourself in the line that we will see of Abram that pursues God by faith? What camp are you in? In what people group are you in? And the glories of this, we might look at a text like this and say, you know, this is the hard part that we see in Scripture. How is it that God just passes over all these other people and he just focuses on these chosen ones? How unfair, we might say, in our own human thinking. How is it that God would just focus on them and care for them and not for me, not for those descendants? Or maybe even you make this more personal and you wonder why your friends or family haven't come to know the Lord. What is it that the Lord is doing? Well, you join these here. But in a beautiful way, the Lord uses this great line to bless the nations, to a place where we come to the New Testament that we hear great truths like god is not overlooking anyone he desires all that would come to repentance he desires that all would hear the message and yes we know that not will all will bow the knee to jesus and believe that he is savior and lord but the issue is this morning have you come to him in faith and repentance to realize that he in his great kindness, as is represented in this genealogy. It's not that he looked over all these that he would choose even one to show grace upon. His grace is mentioned here. The expectation of the hope in him is mentioned all the way through here. So what is it? Are you looking to Christ in faith, believing that God has a better plan for you than you do for yourself? Or do you put your heels in the sand and struggle in pride against the one who created you for his glorious purposes. It's a call. It's a call to us to repent and to turn to him. So as we look at this in the next few weeks, we'll see a connection here between God's grace with this genealogical line, but also God's purposes in renewing people um, by faith in Christ. And this is a glorious future, that family indeed is not everything, but ultimately who we came from and who we look to and God is. So with that, we will end and we'll pick up as we see in chapter 12, verse 1 next week on God being the author of uh, the initiative he takes with Abram and his family line. Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you for helping us look at this genealogy. And Lord, as we see it in the context of your redemptive plan, it it may seem boring to us. It may seem uh, unimportant. But Lord, it connects us to what you are doing in the world. It connects us to how you are working ultimately to bring your son into the world to save sinners like us setting up a context that we can understand because you love us and you love to give us those details but even in those things that we don't see lord you are able to help us god i pray that if there's one here this morning that has never felt earthly closeness to a family because of either how they were raised or uh, being orphaned or just feeling that sense of a lack of connection God, they would see in your word here the beauty of what it means to be a part of the family of God. That, Lord, you would draw near to all of us in our particular circumstances. That you speak of godly fathers and mothers. And, Lord, that you are able to work through these things to bring us to you. And, Lord, I know these applications are numerous. And so, Lord, help us to see that your sovereign plan includes everything that happens in our lives for good and sometimes as we see for evil it seems but you use even our sin you use even the evil of this world to bring about much glory as we'll see in the story of genesis so lord it points to you and we thank you for it help us we pray in these ways and more for your glory and our good in jesus name amen